going to read verses 23 through 31 this morning. And we're actually, uh, this, is, this is part of a section we began last week. Uh, we're finishing up kind of a theme we started looking at last week and how, how these early Christians responded when they faced persecution. And so just as a reminder to you, um, Peter and John, back in chapter 3, they go into the temple. They heal a man who had been disabled from, uh, from birth for over 40 years. Uh, and when they draw a crowd... People begin coming to them, and, and so Peter and John start telling them about Jesus, about the, the power of Jesus to heal, uh, and about the power of Jesus to save. But this also garners some negative attention. Uh, the authorities come and they arrest Peter and John. So the same men who arrested Jesus and had him executed now arrest Peter and John for speaking in Jesus' name. And as they are interrogated before the court, they tell, they tell these Jewish authorities that the same Jesus that they killed has risen from the dead and that He is the only way to be saved. And what we looked at last week was we saw is that, that what, that's what makes the Christian message offensive. It's offensive because it's exclusive in what it claims. Now, it's, it's not exclusive in who it welcomes. Right? The gospel isn't just good news for good people. It's good news for bad people. It's not just good for religious people. It's good for non-religious people. Right? The gospel is good news for everyone. It welcomes all of those who would come to Jesus. So the gospel doesn't limit who can come in, but it does limit how you come in. As Peter says in Acts 4 verse 12, Jesus is the only name that can save. And that, that message of exclusive grace is offensive. It's offensive to those of us who think we're good enough. Uh, it's offensive uh, to those who believe they can merit God's favor on their own. And so just kind of a recap of some of the of what we learned last week. One, we saw that if we preach Jesus, we can expect pushback. We can expect persecution. Right? Some, as we said, some will hear Jesus' claim and they will bow up. There will be opposition. But along with that, again, if we're preaching Jesus, we could also, should also, expect growth. That there will be some people who hear Jesus' claim and they will bow down. Right? That people will be converted, that they will receive Jesus. So if we're preaching Jesus, we should expect both opposition and increase. Both of those are expectations. Those, but we should expect both of those responses. Now, and here's a third point from last week. How people respond is not our responsibility. 
Some will respond favorably, some will not. But how they respond is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to bear witness. Just like Peter and John, they told the, the, the council that they basically were just telling them what they had heard and what they had seen. Right? They were just bearing witness. And, and Peter and John didn't have any of the fancy learning that the priest and the Sadducees had. Right? But they had been with Jesus... And that's what matters. Right? You don't need a master's degree or a bachelor's degree or a high school diploma to, to bear witness to Jesus. But you do have to walk with Jesus. Because you can only give to others what you yourself have. Uh, and so uh, we must walk with Jesus and know Jesus if we want to bear witness to Jesus. Now this morning I want to look at one more aspect of how these early Christians responded to opposition and it's how they prayed. So let's go to God's Word and let's hear what it has to say for us in Acts 4 starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now Lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the sovereign Lord and that your word brings life. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, and that you would mold us and shape us in your image. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I had wanted to, um, I had thought about tacking this passage on to the end of last week's sermon, but there was so much in here that I thought was so instructive and helpful for us. Uh, so, Peter and John have been challenged by powerful men to stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. So they've gotten their first pushback. And what they do is they're released and they go back to their friends and they tell them what's happened. And the very first thing that they do is they pray. They pray together. And I don't want us to miss the the significance of that. 
When threatened, they pray. When threatened, they pray. And the reason that sticks out to me, because it's a very different response than how maybe I would respond when I'm threatened. I compare that to my own potential, potential responses, right? When threatened, they don't retreat. They don't draw back. They don't numb themselves through distraction or entertainment. They pray. And when threatened, they don't respond in anger. Right? They don't get defensive. Uh, they, don't, they don't say, well, that wasn't really fair. I'm going to march back up there and give them a piece of my mind. They don't do that. They pray. They run to the only one who can really help. Hudson Taylor uh, was a missionary to China. He began what, was, what would come to be known as the China Inland Mission. Uh, and he is, he is attributed with this quote, though it's hard to know exactly who said it. Uh, but he said, When we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. And that's what these early Christians wanted. They wanted God to work. But what's surprising is the way that they asked God to work. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So let's look at their prayer. And I want to look at it kind of under this structure. I want us to see two roots and two fruits. Two roots and two fruits. And really the first root I would call the taproot of their prayer. If you're not familiar with planting, the taproot is the first root that grows. It's the the central root. It's the one that goes down deep. If you sever it, uh, then the plant dies. Uh, Everything else grows out of this. And the first root is they focus in their prayer on who God is. In verse 24, right, they begin really with worship. They say, Sovereign Lord who made the earth, the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Right, so they begin their prayer with God Himself. They anchor their hearts on God Himself, which is very similar to how Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6. He begins that prayer by saying, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right, Jesus taught us to pray by beginning with a focus on God. And so these disciples do the same. They call Him Sovereign Lord. The Greek word there means master, uh, a ruler of unchallengeable authority. And then they go on and they say... He is the one who made the skies, the seas, the land, right? Why, why would they begin by talking to God as their creator? Uh, why would they begin by acknowledging that not only is He the one who made everything, but He also made everyone? Why, why would they start there? Well, think about it. They've been challenged by an authority. They've been challenged by a ruler or rulers. They've run afoul of powerful people who can do harm to them, who can do harm to their families, who can hurt them, their wives and their children. And so what they do is they remind themselves of who has ultimate power 
and authority. They remind themselves that behind these rulers is a ruler of unchallengeable power who owns everything, who runs everything. Uh, Think of it kind of like a a schoolyard, uh, a, a fight on the playground. They've been, they've been pushed around. They've been bullied by the bigger kids. And so what do they do? They run to someone who is so much bigger. They go to help for the only one who can help. So in the same way, when we pray, we ought to do the same. We begin prayer with a focus on God so that His strength can meet us in our weaknesses. Are you overwhelmed with what's going on in the world? I certainly am. Twenty twenty. Uh, I mean, it's it's the it's the theme of countless memes and jokes on the internet. Right? Everybody's kind of wondering what disaster will strike next. And that's how challenging this year has been. And so, in prayer, then we ought to begin with the one who is never overwhelmed. Uh, who wrote the script for 2020 and every other year. They are without power in this situation, and so they focus their hearts on the one who has all power. And that's the first root of their prayer. The second root is that they not only do they focus on what God, on who God is, but they also trust in what God is doing. Look in verse 25. They actually begin with Scripture. They, uh, they pray back to God part of Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? Right? They, they fill their minds and their hearts with the Bible. Uh, and then uh, they connect the Bible with what they are experiencing currently. Right? They look at what the Bible says in Psalm 2 about enemy nations, hostile kings aligning themselves against God and against His Messiah and they say, Lord, that's what's happening right now. The the rulers, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the religious authorities, they gathered themselves together against your Messiah, Jesus, just like in Psalm 2. So they begin with Scripture, they connect Scripture to their current experience, and then from there, they recognize that this is all a part of God's plan. Look at... Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Catch this. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they acknowledge not that these... uh, these, these hostile rulers are not a threat, at least not to God. They are not a threat, they are pawns. They are doing whatever God had predestined to take place. And this is not some vague cliche, you know, we, we often say things like, well, everything happens for a reason. 
But th- this is more than that, right? That cliches like that are, are, are true as far as they go. They might look good on a sympathy card, but they don't really have the strength to meet real life. Right, what these people pray to God is not some misty, unclear fate. They acknowledge that God is actively at work in the world. And this God, this sovereign Lord, is even able to use the rebellious actions of sinful people to bring about His saving purposes. And that is really good news. Now what I'm not saying is that rebelling against God is a good idea. Uh, even, even if God does use that, that doesn't mean we should choose rebellion. In fact, rebellion is a really bad idea. It's a lethal idea as we'll see next week when we look at Acts chapter 5. But these early Christians recognized that even as they faced persecution, God was at work in the midst of that persecution. God was working out His sovereign purposes. And so they focused on who God is. They trust in what God is doing. Those are the roots. And now let's look at the fruits. What the, the first fruit that comes out of those roots is their prayers. And what is it that they pray for? Well, let me ask you. What would you pray for? If you were in their shoes and they've acknowledged that God is uh, in control, that He is working things out according to His good pleasure, what would you pray for? I might pray, God, make them stop. I might pray, Lord, keep us safe. And those would be fine prayers. Uh, It's not that those prayers are out of bounds necessarily, but that's not what they pray for. They pray for the power to keep going. They pray for the power to continue to speak boldly. Look in verse 29. They say, Now, Lord, look upon their threats, pay attention to their threats, and give your servants boldness to keep speaking your word. So, God, give us the power to persevere. And then, Lord, confirm that power, confirm your word with miracles of mercy. So they don't pray for safety. They don't pray for vengeance. In fact, what's remarkable to me is there's not a power, there's not a hint of anger or vengeance or malice anywhere in this prayer. Their minds are set on the mission of Jesus. Their minds are set on the good news. That's what's driving their concern. That's what drives their prayers. And God answers their prayer by shaking the room and giving them boldness. Right? They, they experience kind of a second Pentecost, another outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So may we, in our prayers, be so focused on the gospel as they were. But there's a second fruit I want to point out, and we actually see it come more into full flower in Acts chapter 5. So if you would, turn with me over to Acts 5.17. 
We're actually not going to cover this episode on a Sunday morning because it's so similar to Acts chapter 4. We make a lot of the same points. Uh, but I want, to, I want you to see how their prayers are answered by God and what happens. So in Acts chapter 5, uh, the high priest uh, and... The, the Sadducees, the council, they're filled with jealousy. And so once again, they arrest the apostles. They put the apostles in prison. But this time, an angel comes at night and lets them out of prison and, takes, and tells them to go back to the temple and tells them to speak to all the people the words of this life. So it's almost as if God has said, all right, you prayed it, let's do it. You want, you want boldness to continue to persevere? Here you go. And so God sends them back out with the message, even though they'd just been arrested. And that's what they do. They go back to the temple and they keep telling people about Jesus. And so what happens is they get, they get brought in again. This time more peacefully. They get brought back in and they're challenged again. Look at verse 27. And when they brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jesus with your, excuse me, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now let's stop for just a minute. Who was it that had sought a way to arrest and execute Jesus? These people. Who had paid Judas money uh, to betray Jesus so that they could find him and arrest him? These people. Who had put Jesus on trial for blasphemy and called for his death? These people. And who had taken Jesus to the Roman authorities to have him crucified? These people. So if Jesus' blood rests squarely on anybody's hands, it's these people. And so we see right, that the apostles don't have to bring Jesus' blood on them. They earned that themselves. We see kind of the blindness of obstinate unbelief here. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed. By hanging him on a tree. This is now the third time that that Peter has said this to them. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Why? We talked about this last week, that that message from Jesus, um, they they would have to admit that they were wrong. They would have to admit that they killed Jesus and that was a step too far for them. They want, that that makes them angry and they want to kill now Jesus' witnesses. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, 
Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, we don't have any indication that Gamaliel uh, was a Christian, believed in the words of Jesus, but he speaks truer than he realizes. In fact, he acknowledges that that if this movement is of God, then there was no way that it would fail, that they did not need to oppose this. Now, I want you to notice how God protects them. They had not prayed for protection. They had not asked for protection, but God provides it using one of the people who were opposed to them, using Gamaliel, using Gamaliel's logic. They didn't pray for protection specifically, but God gives it anyway. And then notice what happens. They, um, so they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. You know what we call that? Civil disobedience. These men had heard very clearly the message that they were not to continue speaking and teaching. But what does Peter say? We have to obey God, not you. We are under obligation to obey God, not you. And so, even though they're warned, and even though they're beaten, they go out and they continue to do the very thing they've been told not to do. And not only did they go go out and do it again, but they actually rejoiced as they went. Now, when was the last time you got beat like a drum and were happy? And yet these disciples are convinced, right? They, uh, they rejoice that they were able to suffer uh, for the name, for the name of Jesus, following in Jesus' footstep. What is it that compels this kind of living? What is it that compels this kind of uh, life full of gospel purpose? We'll go back up to verse 20 where the angel tells them to go back. He says, Tell these people the words of this life. They are able to endure suffering and persecution. One, because they believe that God sits on His throne, whatever may happen to them. But two, because they also believe that this message is life. That they have the words of eternal life and they must speak them so that people can be saved. They are driven by God's 
glory. They are driven by God's goodness. May we be driven in the same way. Even as we face opposition, may the, may the good and glorious sovereignty of God compel us outward. May we not withdraw into shells. May we not hide. May we not grow angry and bitter, but, but be pushed outward to deliver good news of life to the world. Let's pray.